This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, Shakespeare goes back to ancient Rome one final time. It's time for the tragedy of Coriolanus. Licentious rogues that rubbing the poor itch of your opinion make yourselves scab! Was ever man so proud as is this Martius? Make you a sword of me! What must I do? Return to the tribute. Well, what then? What then? Repent what you have spoke. For them? Thus I turn my back. There is a world elsewhere! All right, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Your timer is set for one minute. All is rotten in the state of Rome. Again. There's a famine and everyone's blaming Caius Martius, a soldier who holds the public in contempt. A battle breaks out between Rome and the Volscian army, during which Caius Martius fights the Volscian Tullus Ophidius, and Caius Martius is instrumental to a victory at the city of Corioli, leading him to receive the nickname of Coriolanus. In Rome, Coriolanus is named consul after winning the support of the Senate, but he has earned the animosity of Brutus and Sinius, two other senators. They turn the public against Coriolanus, who lashes out at the mob, resulting in him being banished from Rome. Coriolanus goes back to Ophidius so he can be killed, but Ophidius instead makes him into an ally. The two wage war in Rome, and Rome sends Coriolanus's mother, Volumnia, and his wife, Virgilia, to beg Coriolanus to change his mind. Coriolanus does, leading to a peace treaty between him and Rome, and for his efforts, he is promptly assassinated by Ophidius and his cohorts. The last of Shakespeare's tragedies, Coriolanus, is a play that it took me many years to appreciate, and the rest of the world was much of the same. There's no record of the play being performed before 1682, and even after that, the play remained unpopular, though this may not be Shakespeare's fault. It has always been popular to rewrite and adapt Shakespeare's work, and we're not always honest about it. At that 1682 performance, the fifth act reportedly was changed so that the curtain fell on a stage full of corpses. Ever since, Coriolanus has remained one of those plays that makes rare appearances on the stage. It's only recently that the play finally appears to be achieving some of the recognition that I think it deserves. In Coriolanus, Shakespeare returns to the ideas he began to explore in Timon of Athens. There, if you'll recall, Alcibiades is banished by the Senate and returns to Athens with an army to take revenge. Coriolanus, of course, will do something similar when he sides with the Volscian army after he is betrayed by the senators of Rome. Now, in both cases, the exile is a soldier first and a politician second. Neither Coriolanus or Alcibiades are equipped for life as a politician, and their lives are thrown into chaos by their inability to play the political game. Alcibiades, though, was a secondary character, whereas Coriolanus is our hero, and herein lies the difference between why Timon is such an unsatisfactory play, while Coriolanus might have made for a very gripping night at the Globe. The script is a return to form for Shakespeare, whose work between 1605 and the end of his career is marked by a motley group of uneven and often experimental plays. Coriolanus has its problems, but none of them are fatal. As always, we open in Medeus Res when the Roman people are suffering from famine, the blame for which is being put squarely on Coriolanus. Now, he's not Coriolanus yet. 
for this is just the nom de guerre that is slapped onto Caius Martius halfway through the play. But for the sake of clarity, I'm just going to refer to him as Coriolanus throughout this discussion. Shakespeare's decision to open the play in Medea's Res uh, is a dynamic choice that recalls the opening of another Roman play, the exquisite Julius Caesar. Now there, if you recall, we opened on a mob in the midst of celebration. But here, the mob has a far darker purpose. You know Caius Martius is chief enemy to the people! Let's kill him, and we'll have corn at our own price! He's the burnish! We're accounted poor citizens, the patricians good. Oh, what authority surf its own would relieve us? If they would yield us, but the superfluity, while it were wholesome, we might guess they relieved us humanely, but they think we are too dear. The leanness that afflicts us, the object of our misery, is an inventory to particularize their abundance. Our sufferance is a gain to them. Let us revenge this with our pikes ere we become rakes. For the gods know, I speak this in hunger for bread, not in thirst for revenge. Would you proceed especially against Caius Martius? Against him first. He's a very dog to the commonalty. Aside from opening the play in a moment of crisis, there's a famine and the people are about to rebel, Shakespeare uses this scene to establish both our main character and what will be his central conflict throughout the play. Namely, Coriolanus, to put it nicely, is not a people person. Faced with an unruly mob, he responds as a soldier rather than a politician, and it is this instinct which will be his undoing as the play continues. But Shakespeare does not tell us this. Instead, he uses the conflict of the first scene to show us so that we can see for ourselves. Action is character, and Coriolanus's first address to the mob tells us everything we need to know about who he is. What's the matter, you dissentious rogues, that rubbing the poor itch of your opinion make yourselves scabs? Oh, we have ever your good words. He that will give good words to thee will flatter beneath abhorring. What would you have, you curs, that like nor peace nor war? The one affrights you, the other makes you proud. He that trusts to you... Where he should find you lions, finds you hares. Where foxes, geese. You are no surer, no, than is the coal of fire upon the ice or hailstone in the sun. Your virtue is to make him worthy whose offence subdues him and curse that justice did it. Now, moments later, he will be relieved when he is told the Volscian army is on the march. Coriolanus is happy to leave diplomacy to the diplomats, and no sooner does he leave than two senators, Sicinius and Brutus, begin to plot against him. Was ever man so proud as is this Martius? He has no equal. When we were chosen tribunes for the people... Not you, his lip and eyes. Nay, but his taunts. <laughs> Being moved, he will not spare to gird the gods. Bemock the modest moon. The present wars devour him. He is grown too proud to be so valiant. 
The first scene of Coriolanus is a juggernaut. It grabs the audience and thunders forward, establishing the hero, the villains, and the central conflict all in short order. The next scene introduces us to Tullus Aphidius, and the scene after that gives us the wondrous Volumnia, by which point we have met all our main characters. There is such an impressive economy to this, the exact sword Shakespeare had perfected in Macbeth a few years before. The rest of the first act, the longest of any first act Shakespeare ever wrote, is focused on the crucial battle between Rome and the Volscian army, the one from which Coriolanus will become a hero and gain the name that is the title to our play. Its importance to the plot is so critical that Shakespeare devotes seven scenes to it, making it one of the longest battle sequences in the canon. Aside from its narrative importance, the battle scene is also our opportunity to see Coriolanus at his best. This is the Roman general in his element, and he'll never be this magnificent again. I do beseech you, by all the battles wherein we have fought, by the blood we have shed together, by the vows we have made to endure friends, that you directly set me against Orphidius and his antiates, and that you not delay the present, but filling the air with swords advanced and darts, we prove this very hour. <laughs> Though I could wish you were conducted to a gentle bath and balms applied to you, yet dare I never deny your asking. Take your choice of those that best can aid your action. Those are they that most are willing. If any such be here, as it were sin to doubt, that love this painting wherein you see me smeared, if any fear lesser his person than an ill report, if any think brave death outweighs bad life, and that his country's dearer than himself, let him alone, or so many so minded, wave us to express his disposition and follow Marshall! <laughs> Coriolanus earns our respect, not necessarily because we believe in the same things that he does, but because he has portrayed himself to be loyal and brave, with some humility thrown in for good measure. Worthy Cominius, speak. Nay, keep your place. Sit, Coriolanus, never shame to hear what you have nobly done. Your Honour's pardon. I had rather have my wounds to heal again than hear say how I got them. Sir? It's not hard for us to believe that he is popular enough to run for election in Rome because we have seen him in action for ourselves. But we also know, as Coriolanus does, that he is ill-suited for the job. And here is where Shakespeare introduces us to the play's central dramatic tension. We have already seen his method of dealing with the masses. We have seen the behind-the-scenes machinations of Brutus and Silius. We know, even as we watch Coriolanus accept the role of consul, that he is headed into danger far worse than any he faced on the fields of war. Coriolanus cannot help but be compared in parts to Julius Caesar. Aside from the setting, the two plays have similar construction. In Coriolanus, we even encounter another Brutus unhappy with the popularity of the play's title character. This Brutus, unlike the last one, isn't interested in murder. Instead, he seeks to sabotage Coriolanus's popularity through politics. Yet, this Brutus also turns to a trusted friend for support. Unfortunately, the relationship between Brutus and Cecilius isn't half as interesting as the one between Brutus and Cassius. Indeed, they have little identities of their own and are almost seen together like a villainous version of Tweedledum and Tweedledee, or if we were to stick to the canon, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. In Julius Caesar, Brutus and Cassius are distinct. Indeed, it is their relationship which is the crux of the play. 
In Coriolanus, though, Shakespeare renders his duo of villains as being largely indistinct. Always appearing together, they could exchange lines and it would hardly matter. It is not they which are characters, but rather what they represent, namely the status quo. A similar thing can be said about the citizens of Rome, who are equally crucial to this play. As Shakespeare did in Julius Caesar, this time the mob itself is a character. When they are together, the citizens have lost their individuality and are swept along by whatever emotion has seized the herd. In making Brutus, Silius, and the mob of citizens indistinct, Shakespeare creates a dramatic scenario in which his hero is confronted not with individuals, but rather with an institution, democracy. It is the perfect enemy for Coriolanus, a man who is used to the hierarchy of the military. In the army, rank is everything. The privates don't get to vote on who becomes their commanding officer, so there is less need for those officers to maintain favor with the privates. But in a democracy, politicians must constantly curry favor, both with the masses and with each other. Shakespeare, then, concocts a play that pits Coriolanus against the only villain that he can't fight on the battlefield. It's also the toughest villain he will ever face. As in Julius Caesar, the mob in Coriolanus is a fickle beast, something which tries Coriolanus's patience. Learning that the mob is incensed against him, Coriolanus attacks Cecilius and Brutus for letting the mob's baser instincts prevail. What is that? It will be dangerous to go on no further. What makes this change? The matter. Hath he not passed the noble and the common? Cominius, no. Have I had children's voices? Tribunes give way. He shall to the marketplace. The people are incensed against him. Stop, or all will fall in broil. Are these your herd? Must these have voices that can yield them now and straight disclaim their tongues? What are your offices? You being their mouths, why rule you not their teeth? Have you not set them on? Be calm, be calm. It is a purposed thing and grows by plot to curb the will of the nobility. Suffer it and live with such as cannot rule nor ever will be ruled. Hot! Shakespeare has given us a hero who believes that he deserves his place as a consul by virtue of his service to Rome. Rome has popular rule, but Coriolanus discovers that he does not actually believe in it as a system. Given that Shakespeare was writing for an audience who lived under a monarchy, there's something politically expedient about Coriolanus's rant against popular rule. Whoever gave that counsel to give forth the corn of the storehouse gratis as t'was used sometime in Greece? Well, well, no more of that. Though there the people had more absolute power, I say they nourished disobedience fed the ruin of the state. Why shall the people give one that speaks thus their voice? I'll give my reasons more worthier than their voices. They know the corn was not our recompense, resting well assured they ne'er did service for it. Being pressed to the war, even when the navel of the state was touched, they would not thread the gates. This kind of service did not deserve corn gratis. Being in the war, their mutinies and revolts wherein they showed most valour spoke not for them. The accusation which they have often made against the Senate, all cause unborn, could never be the native of our so frank donation. Well, what then? How shall this bosom multiplied digest the Senate's courtesy? 
Let deeds express what's like to be their words. We did request it. We are the greater pole, and in true fear they gave us our demands. Thus we debase the nature of our seats and make the rabble call our cares fears, which will in time break open the locks of the Senate and bring in the crows to peck the eagles. As with Julius Caesar, Shakespeare uses the story of ancient Rome to explore the perils of a democratic-style government. Democracy itself is something of a villain. The mob is easily manipulated, while the politicians are happy, to turn the people against Coriolanus when it suits their needs. Poor Coriolanus is the happy soldier who fought for his country without ever stopping to think about what it was he was actually fighting for. Here, then, is the beginnings of Coriolanus' tragedy. His entire identity is that of a soldier for Rome. As we are constantly reminded throughout the play, he has gained wounds defending Rome from its enemies. And yet, when the time comes for him to take a different role, the veil is lifted and he discovers what it is he is actually fighting for. Coriolanus is stunned at the ways politicians must manipulate their image. Why did you wish me milder, he asks his mother. Would you have me false to my nature? This, of course, is the most basic part of any democracy, as anyone who has watched an election knows. Politicians are false to their nature all the time, but Coriolanus finds such behavior dishonorable. His inner battle at the heart of the play is this ethical quandary. Should one lie about who they are in order to take power if they know that once they are in power, they could sincerely do good? Or does the very act of lying inherently degrade the politician from the start? Now, we know which side Volumnia falls on. A descendant of Lady Macbeth, Volumnia is eager to counsel her son to do what he needs to do to stay in charge. You are too absolute. Though therein you can never be too noble but when extremities speak. I have heard you say honour and policy like unsevered friends in the war do grow together. Grant that and tell me in peace what each of them by the other lose that they combine not there. Tush, tush. A good demand. If it be honour in your wars to seem the same you are not, which for your best end you adopt your policy, how is it less or worse that it shall hold companionship in peace with honour as in war, since that to both it stands in like request? Why force you this? Because that now it lies you on to speak to the people not by your own instruction, nor by the matter which your heart prompts you, but with such words that are but roted in your tongue, though but bastards and syllables of no allowance to your bosom's truth. Now this no more dishonours you at all than to take in a town with gentle words, which else would put you to your fortune and the hazard of much blood. I would dissemble with my nature where my fortunes and my friends at stake required I should do so in honour. I am in this your wife, your son, these senators, the nobles. And you will rather show our general louch how you can frown and spend a fawn upon them for the inheritance of their loves and safeguard of what that want might ruin. Now, this whole scene in which Volumnia and Coriolanus debate the moral implications of him playing false to his nature is one of the play's finest. In Shakespeare's time, the audience could watch the degradation of morals as evidence as to why democracies are the weaker system. In the modern day, where democracies have become the norm in the Western world, the play pushes us to question whether there are ethical sacrifices that are always going to be inherent to any democratic system. 
Shakespeare's Rome is clearly a world of moral decay. The politicians are corrupt, the people are corruptible, and Coriolanus is the good man caught in the middle. If any of this sounds familiar, it's because Shakespeare explored the same nihilistic terrain in Measure for Measure. Time and again, in the last third of the canon, we see Shakespeare continue to return to these pessimistic themes. A word must be said about Volumnia, who stands out as one of the few great roles for older women in the canon. She is reminiscent of Constance and Eleanor in King John, and the wild King Margaret in Richard III, yet Volumnia is thoroughly original because she is a largely fictional creation. Shakespeare took the story of Coriolanus from the writings of Plutarch, and though Volumnia's actions generally concur with Plutarch's account, Shakespeare was largely left on his own to bring the character to life. He does a remarkable job, leaving us with a woman whose power over her son is distinct and full of all sorts of interpretations. Many have noted that Virgilia, Coriolanus' wife, is more or less a non-entity in the play, and this could be Volumnia's doing. Given that Coriolanus' father is gone, it's likely that some sort of codependency exists between mother and son. His devotion to her is critical to the plot, since it will be why he eventually makes his failed decision to make peace with Rome. Part of Coriolanus' struggle then comes from the fact that to please his mother, he must defy himself. He attempts to make the moral sacrifice only to find he can't do it, resulting in a breakdown which ends his brief political career with an attack on the citizens of Rome. There's no more to be said! But he is banished as enemy to the people and his country. It shall be so. It shall be so. It shall be so. Come and cry of tears, whose breath I hate as reek of the rotten fens, whose loves I prize as the dead carcasses of unburied men that do corrupt my air. I banish you, and here remain with your uncertainty. Let every feeble rumour shake your hearts. Your enemies, with nodding of their plumes, fan you into despair, have the power still to banish your defenders, till at length your ignorance, which finds not till it feels, making but reservation of yourselves, still your own foes, deliver you as most abated captives to some nation that won you without blows, despising for you the city, thus I turn my back. There is a world elsewhere. Now, devoted listeners to this podcast will recall that I've played this speech before when I was discussing Timon of Athens, and I compared this moment to the one where Alcibiades rails against the Senate. But Coriolanus echoes Timon in other places, too. Both plays have a satirical edge in their depiction of the singular good man in a corrupted world, and both depict the same man becoming uh, suicidal after exiling himself from his home. Now, Timon goes to live in a cave and eat roots. His suicide is by wasting away. Coriolanus' suicide is much more direct. He seeks out Tullus Aphidius and lays his neck at the enemy's feet. Then if thou hast... A heart of reek in thee that wilt revenge thine own particular wrongs and stop those maims of shame seen through thy country. Speed thee straight and make my misery serve thy turn. So use it that my revengeful services may prove as benefits to thee. 
for I will fight against my cankered country with the spleen of all the underfiends. But if so be, thou darest not this, and that to prove more fortunes thou tired, then, in a word, I also am longer to live most weary, and present my throat to thee, and to thy ancient malice, which not to cut would show thee but a fool, since I have ever followed thee with hate, drawn tons of blood out of thy country's breast, and cannot live but to thy shame, unless it be to do thee service. Aphidius, recognizing that the enemy of his enemy is actually his friend, turns Coriolanus into an ally, which necessitates that Coriolanus face another moral quandary. Should he side with his enemies against Rome, when Rome includes his wife, his mother, and his child? The quick answer is yes, but this proves easier to say when his family is not staring him in the face, a fact we find out in the stellar Act 5, Scene 3, when the family comes to plead to Coriolanus on behalf of all of Rome. In a play that opened with a spectacular battle, it's a pleasant juxtaposition to see the story climax with this quiet, more interior battle between mother and son. Coriolanus, the soldier, has turned away from his duty to the army but he cannot, it seems, easily turn away from his duty as a son. So we will home to Rome and die among our neighbors. Nay, behold, this boy that cannot tell what he would have but kneels and holds up hands for fellowship does reason our petition with more strength than thou hast to deny it. This fellow had a devotion to his mother. His wife is in Coriolis, and this child like him by John. Yet give us our dispatch. I am hushed until our city be a fire. Then I'll speak a little. Oh, mother, mother, what have you done? Behold, the heavens do ope, the gods look down. And this unnatural scene they laugh at. Oh, my mother. Mother. Oh, you have won a happy victory to Rome. He will pay for this decision with his life. Not in a glorious battle scene, but in an ambush. Like Julius Caesar, Coriolanus is killed by conspirators. The tragedy of Coriolanus is that he was made only for war. Away from battle, he was lost, torn by conflicting duties to his family, his city, and his own moral code. It's notable that Coriolanus lacks any true allies. Even his friends and family fail to support him when he turns from whatever duty they think he must perform. His failure to find a means of survival is completely in keeping with Shakespeare's pessimism. The play is as pessimistic as King Lear in spirit, if not in body count. Shakespeare's tragedies are famed for ending with a stage full of corpses, which may be why that version in 1682 changed the final act to put all those corpses on stage. But the whole point is that in Coriolanus, there's only one body on stage when the curtain falls. In death, as in life, Coriolanus is entirely alone. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. 
For a long time, the only version of Coriolanus was the one produced by the BBC for television back in 1984. Directed by Elijah Moshinsky, it's not terrible, and it is definitely faithful to the text. But far more audacious is the 2012 movie directed by Ralph Fiennes, who also stars. The adaptation is modern and set in a Rome that never quite threw out the governing system of its ancient counterpart. With the modern world to play with, Fiennes is able to expand the universe of the play so that the Senate hearings are broadcast and Coriolanus' breakdown, his moment when he turns his back on Rome, happens in front of TV cameras. The cast is stellar with Gerard Butler as Aphidias and Vanessa Redgrave displaying her usual power and ferocity as Volumnia. Jessica Chastain has less to do as Virgilia, but that's more Shakespeare's fault than hers. But as Coriolanus, Fiennes has a really great time playing the brutal and brutalized hero, and the modern setting allows for great parallels with how soldiers are treated when they leave the battlefield behind. Given that the play also explores democracy run amok, the modern setting allows us to draw parallels between the world of the play and whichever democracy we may find ourselves living in. If you're new to Coriolanus, Fiennes' version might be a good gateway drug before watching the more complete and classic BBC. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for this episode of Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, Shakespeare gives us one more fairy tale, and it has the greatest stage direction ever written. It's time for The Winter's Tale. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. For more information about me and this podcast, please visit www.joelfishbane.net where you can download every episode of Shakespeare and Bard. You can also find out information about how to get your hands on my book, The Thunder of Giants, a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them. It's available from St. Martin's Press. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. 33 plays down. Five to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.